On this episode of AvTalk, we review which airlines and countries have now canceled all flights. And journalist Ethan Clapper joins us to discuss the impact COVID-19 is having on some air traffic control facilities around the United States. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hi, Ian. Hello, Jason. Long time no speak. It hasn't been a long time. I feel like it has been an abnormally short period of time. Well, I suppose in real time it has been short since it's only been a week. But in feel-as-like time, it's been decades. <laughs> many, many decades. Many, many in the last decades. Two days. It's Tuesday, the 24th of March, and we sit here light years beyond where we were on Friday of last week talking because so much has happened since then. Additional air traffic control areas of responsibility have been impacted by COVID-19 cases. Those have mostly been in the US and they've taken out a few big chunks of airspace, but things seem to be managing to to move on their own. We'll be joined later in the program by Ethan Clapper, who's going to walk us through what has happened and what it means and how some of the nuts and bolts and how this actually works. Because Jason and I generally understand what's happening, but we're remiss to explain it well. So we're going to talk with Ethan in a little bit. Yesterday, the 23rd of March, we tracked in total fewer than 100,000 flights for the first time since Christmas 2016. Wow. That's a, a big drop. A big drop. Commercial traffic from March 1st to March 23rd, that number is is 50%. So in total, commercial traffic's down about 15%, but the number is, is increasing day by day as the number of commercial flights falls. Right now, I'm looking at 6,500 total flights in the air uh, around the world at uh, 2200 UTC time on Tuesday, March 24th. The normal number would be not quite twice that, but approaching. So we are down around the world a considerable amount of air traffic. But that's not to say there's not still a considerable amount of air traffic out there. 6,500 flights is, is still quite a bit. Yeah, perhaps even too much at this point in real in realistic terms. Uh, I mean, yeah, it it we've reached the point where maybe it it's best. I mean, we've seen and we'll get into this in, in a few minutes, but I we're nearing 100 airlines that have canceled service, not have canceled some service, but have canceled service. All service. So we are unofficially tracking now 76 airlines that have canceled outright 100% of all flights and another uh, 16 on top of that that are 95% or higher and that a whole range of airlines that are above 80% that are, are functionally no longer international airlines at this point. So yeah, the number of airlines that are either completely suspended operations globally or 
are so drastically reduced that they are just operating one route domestically on a subsidized government contract is uh, scary. Yeah, I mean, for instance, what uh, Kenya Airways announced that they were ceasing all international flying because the the borders have closed, uh, but they've got one domestic route. I, I think that they've kept open. Thai Airways today announced that they are stopping all flights effective March 25th, and a few of the country prohibitions went into effect today. India at midnight went in down into lockdown, so no. They had previously earlier in the week said no international flights, and then they said no domestic flights. So there are now only cargo flights going to the entire country of India. And, and overflight yeah, as well. It, well, and overflights as well. But but you know, landing or, or departing, uh, on, only cargo as of this time. And then the other one today was United Arab Emirates, and, and that was an interesting one because <laughs> because early over the weekend, Emirates came out and said, effective March twenty fifth, we will no longer be flying passengers. Then they at came all. back and no, said, "No yeah, passengers. We're done. We're done. Yeah, no, we're, no flights. We're taking a yeah. break." Sky Cargo, Emirates Sky Cargo will continue to operate, which is not a large portion of their operations, but that was going to continue to operate. But passenger flights would would be over. Then they said, "No, just kidding. We're still going to operate some services." And then the UAE stepped in and said, "Well, no, you're not, because we're going to close all the airports." Whoops! And that was so, all in the span of like hours. Yeah, that, that was yeah. That was I think maybe eight hours tops that we we're, we're not talking we days. Through that we're, whole we're, we're talking about the initial announcement and then maybe two hours before the the walk back of saying, oh wait, never mind. We'll operate a handful of destinations to maybe six hours after that saying, actually, uh, the country is not letting us do anything at all. Yeah, so that now affects uh, a huge number of transit passengers and. Including uh, not just Emirates, but also Etihad and Fly Dubai and uh, whoever else really that was flying there. But but a lot of those airlines had already stopped flying uh, beyond uh, Emirates, Etihad, and, and Fly Dubai. So that's a huge transit hub that's been taken out of play. Speaking of transit hubs, there's a group of Algerians stuck in the airport. Yeah, they're playing out the early 2000s Tom Hanks movie, The Terminal for Real. And it's not great, but at least the airport and local authorities seem to be watching out for them and trying to do what they can. But there are over a thousand uh, passengers kind of stuck in limbo. They can't enter the country. They can't leave the country. I, I should clarify that this isn't Dubai. This is in Turkey. Turkey. My apologies. I, I kind of skipped over that to start the story off. But yeah, there a thousand passengers and Turkey's negotiating with Algeria. Please, can we let these people leave the airport because we're not going to let them back into Turkey? So, a, a rather unfortunate situation, given everything that's happening, not to be able to either go home or, or go somewhere besides an airport terminal. Right, not great. And back to India. I know it's the middle of the night there right now, maybe three a.m. But there is not a single narrowbody aircraft at all over. Indian airspace, which is just kind of mind blowing right now. And considering that it's one of the largest domestic markets for air travel and growing, the sheer number of aircraft that would normally be flying, maybe not in the middle of the night, but come tomorrow morning, is certainly you know going to be felt. Oh, I found one. 
It's a Spice Express 737 freighter, which I didn't even know existed with SpiceJet. So that's cool. This is one of the side, not benefits, but just kind of interesting things that's happening. Side things. As commercial flights that would normally kind of crowd the map are being grounded, a lot of people are finding some very interesting things that, that they normally wouldn't see. Like a lot of the Canadian, smaller Canadian carriers that are still operating, a lot of the mapping and geosensing flights that sometimes get pointed out but are, are usually masked under a, a blanket of commercial travel are getting pointed out. And, and obviously, people are discovering loon balloons for the first time. So that's always an interesting yeah, thing for, for them to see. But yeah, still, still a lot of uh, a lot of traffic being grounded, and we're not near the end. No, we're we're uh, more towards the beginning, at least in North America, than we are the end. Um, there is still an astronomical number of flights in the U.S. compared to the actual demand for flights, since so many flights are going out with uh, single-digit load factors. So flights are only going to get cut back before they get reinstated. Um, there are some airlines that haven't cut back much at all against all odds at this point. Like Alaska has officially only cut 15% of their schedule, and I, I don't quite understand that, but I would expect cuts to come soon. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've seen in the past five days, I would say, a dramatic decrease in global traffic, and, and the US is starting to drive that further decrease. And like you said, I think we'll see in the coming days through this week, I think we'll see a, a much more substantial drop in traffic and, and further uh, further announcements that airlines are cutting routes and, and cutting services and parking additional aircraft. We'll see. Got nothing else to do but wait and see what happens. That's true. Boeing has stopped building aircraft in Washington state. Yeah, and this time it's more than just the 7.3 Max, which has already had its production stop. This time it's all of the wide bodies as well, the 7.6, the 777, the 7.8, and I guess as well the 777X. The production has completely ceased for a while as um, a couple a couple workers in the wide body facility up in Everett tested positive for coronavirus, and I believe one actually unfortunately passed away earlier in the week. So they are pausing production completely there. So right now, all Boeing production at all is happening in the uh, Charleston, South Carolina plant. Yeah. Which and, I and that's, haven't heard uh, a shutdown. No, no. I, I haven't heard anything either. And, and so, the, the Charleston plant is the, um, the 787 line. That's really all they build. So, that'll be interesting to see you know how how things work there and, and how long they're able to take, to keep that going suppliers have also started to maneuver around stoppage and, and continuing to produce things and i mean beyond uh, the the ongoing issues with the 737 max supply line spirit arrow has stopped work for boeing or most work for boeing but some of the other suppliers like like leonardo are still manufacturing components for for Boeing. So it'll be interesting to see how all of that is managed as things maybe eventually return back to normal. We'll we'll maybe. see how that goes. Maybe maybe. 
Let's take a quick break and come back and talk with Ethan Clapper, who's going to fill us in on what happened over the weekend at various air traffic control sites, including Chicago's Midway Airport, Las Vegas Airport, as well as a few of the in-route air route traffic control centers. And we'll learn more a bit about how the airspace operates and why closing down portions of these centers has such a big impact on flights over the US. So stick with us. We'll be right back in just a moment. Welcome back. We are now joined by Ethan Clapper, who is a journalist and aeronautics graduate student. And he is joining us today to talk about what happened over the past weekend at a few of the FAA facilities, including the control towers at Midway Airport in Chicago, Las Vegas Airport, and then the two in route centers at Indianapolis and New York, or covering the airspace around Indianapolis and New York. Ethan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ian. And uh, hi, Jason. Hey, Ethan. Welcome to the show. This is long overdue having you on. So to kind of recap, and then we'll get into a bit about the particulars of, of why the response was the way it was. There were presumptive positive cases uh, of COVID-19 at the Midway Control Tower at the Las Vegas Control Tower, and then at the Indianapolis Air Route Traffic Control Center, so the the center that controls uh, in route airspace, as well as the the New York Center. And the responses have been a, a bit different at different places. And I was hoping that you could walk us through a little bit about what happened in Chicago, Las Vegas, and the, and then we'll take the the centers next, I guess. Sure. So. The reason that the responses have been different at each facility is because the FAA is allowing the local public health authorities to decide what the response will be in each particular facility. So the first facility that was affected by COVID-19 would be Midway Tower. And in that case, the local public health authority in Cook County, Illinois, decided that the tower needed to be closed, fully cleaned. And uh, initially, uh, the thinking was that it would need to be closed for two weeks, which is the quarantine period. But we are recording this on Tuesday. And as of this morning, that facility has reopened. So I'm not sure exactly why that reopened early. But the initial guidance was that the facility would have had to been closed for two weeks. So then in Las Vegas, similarly had a two-week order from the local public health authority there. That is a facility that shares some common use space, parking lots and such with the Las Vegas TRACON, Terminal Radar Approach Control Facility there. So the tower has been closed since last week, and it has not returned yet. Likewise, the Las Vegas TRACON has also been closed in that period of time, just briefly overnight for a cleaning, but there are no confirmed cases at the TRACON. So that's what's happened at Las Vegas. Real quick, I mean, last episode, we talked about a little bit about what the various facilities are doing. To to clarify, the they share some space, but in Las Vegas, they are in fact separate facilities? That's correct. They, are, they, they do share 
a parking lot and and my understanding is some common use facilities, but they are separate facilities. So you don't have Las Vegas tower controllers working uh, the radar positions. And the identifier for the Tracon there is L30. And then for the tower is just LAS, which is the airport code. And then in the centers over the weekend, basically a, a big hole opened up in the eastern part of the United States. What happened in Indianapolis? So at Indianapolis Center, which is one of the en route facilities that handles air traffic at the higher altitudes, they do work to the ground in some spots, but generally speaking, they will work at higher altitudes. There was a confirmed positive case of COVID-19 at that facility that was in an area of the facility that handles the eastern part of that facility. And as a result, the local public health authority decided to close my understanding is three areas worth of airspace in that facility, and that remains closed to this day as of Tuesday. The Indianapolis Center has also gone complete ATC zero, which is a term you you hear during this situation, which means a cessation, no ATC services available. Uh, they did go ATC zero overnight uh, for a full cleaning of the facility. So they have been able to generally maintain service in the western part of the facility but not the eastern part of the facility. And Indianapolis Center is an interesting uh, facility because of all of the cargo that is concentrated in that um, particular area of the country. Uh, you have a massive UPS world port. Their largest hub is in Louisville, which is in Indianapolis Center. You have FedEx's hub in Indianapolis. You have a lot of other operations in Cincinnati like um, Amazon Air, and Polar DHL. So there's a lot of cargo that can be disrupted at this time. Luckily, it doesn't seem to have caused major disruptions. It's There have been reroutes and um, what's called tower and route control. People allowed to depart underneath the center talking to approach controls. But it certainly has disrupted cargo in, in some of the biggest cargo hubs in the country. So what exactly is ATC Zero? If a facility like a, a Tracon has to shut down suddenly, what happens in that scenario? Can the FAA move those operations to neighboring facilities or is it pretty much a, a close the door, no fights allowed in or out at that point? Well, it depends on the facility. So in the case of a Tracon, generally speaking, the airspace would become would revert to the uh, en route center that is over that Tracon. That is what happened that night. When Las Vegas Tracon was closed, it reverted to Los Angeles Center, which is the facility that overlies Las Vegas Tracon. And because the en route facilities do not have faster radar, their radar is a little slower than a terminal facility, they are just not able to handle as many aircraft as a terminal facility would, so there are more delays. It was overnight in this case, so it was not as much of an impact, but certainly in the case of a Tracon, that's what would happen. In the case of Midway Tower or Las Vegas Tower, what happens is that you go to what is called a one-in, one-out operation. So you can only have a single IFR instrument flight rules operation going inbound to the airport or leaving the airport at a particular given time unless somebody terminates their, uh, cancels their IFR or their IFR clearance. So that has caused delays into Midway, although Southwest Airlines has canceled a significant amount of flights into Midway, and that's by far the airport's largest operator. So that has mitigated it a little bit, but 
Chicago approach control in this case, C90 has has told people that they have to hold or just much slower rate in order to give people time to arrive on the ground and then cancel their IFR clearance before another aircraft is cleared on the approach. And I feel like this one went a little bit under the radar, not to use that term ironically, but at JFK, they had a bit of an issue as well, where they actually had to uh, close down the primary ATC tower and, and start working, I guess, remotely from a backup facility, a backup tower on the airport, which I thought was pre- pretty fascinating. Thankfully, that was on a Saturday morning in the overnight hours, so there wasn't much traffic to disrupt at all. But I thought that was pretty unique and cool that they were able to basically get up and move to a secondary site on the airport and continue on with their work. That's right. And it was definitely a an interesting uh, situation when that happened. It was actually happening during a period of time when there was uh, instrument meteorological conditions. So the ability of the controllers to see the traffic, I think, was somewhat limited. That was my understanding. But yeah, that's again an example of a different response than what we've seen elsewhere, having a backup facility there. So it's been all over the place in terms of disruptions and, and what the responses have been. And again, that's largely... I'm pretty sure in that case was again driven by the local health authority. So I want to back up for a moment. You said a few things that that I would personally like some clarity on. You said that the center radar is slower. I would like you to explain what you mean by that. So a terminal facility, a, a TRACON or an approach control would use a radar system that's called STAR Standard Terminal Automation Replacement System. And that's tied to radar systems that are has a much higher refresh rate. I don't know the actual refresh rate off the top of my head, but they actually, the targets on their screens will update more frequently on an approach controller screen than on a center controller screen. Center uses a system called ERAM, Enroute Aircraft Modernization, or some acronym. ERAM is the system that they use on the centers, and it is tied to a bunch of radar sites around the country, and that radar does not update as frequently. So they cannot sequence aircraft into airports as closely as they might be able to if they were to use a STARS radar setup. So this is why, for instance, we talked on the last episode about when there was an issue in Chicago um, and there were only a few ways to get out of the... um, to get out of the Chicago airspace, and, and the center was managing the airspace, and, and we we discussed, you know, they they could only take off in, in a certain kind of extended length of time. So you're saying that's one of the main drivers behind that, not not just that you're shuffling traffic into a single facility that would normally be spread across two or three facilities, but then you're also saying this is by design a, a bit slower because we don't normally deal with aircraft space so close together. So that's lengthening the the time it takes between you know an aircraft landing or an aircraft departing. That's right. Increased separation for that. That's right. And then the other thing that I, I wanted to kind of expand on that we talked about last time, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because you've been very good at explaining uh, about you know things on Twitter, and I, I suggest everyone give Ethan a follow, uh, at Ethan Clapper, and we'll put this link in the show notes, but good at explaining what's actually happening kind of in the nitty gritty. And you mentioned one in, one out, and canceling their IFR clearance. Can you kind of explain what is actually happening when that happens? Sure. So an instrument flight rules flight plan and instrument flight rules clearance is a set of rules that aircraft are almost always under part 121, which is the um, the regulation that that our commercial aircraft follow in the United States. 
and they are almost always on an instrument flight rules flight plan. That means that they're under constant ATC surveillance, under communication with air traffic control, and they have to follow ATC instructions. Importantly, having an IFR flight plan is a prerequisite to be flying anywhere above 18,000 feet in the United States in what's called the Class A, the Class Alpha airspace. So that is really important. And when you're canceling your IFR clearance, you are telling the air traffic controller that you no longer require their services, you no longer require their surveillance, and that you're going to make it in on your own. And they will say, radar service terminated, frequency change approved. And you are on your own and you will switch the frequency over to what's called a CTAF, a common traffic advisory frequency. And in the case of Midway and pretty sure Las Vegas as well, this is just the regular tower frequency and people are announcing their positions on this frequency. Southwest one, you know, left downwind runway 31 center, that sort of a thing. So that is very different than a controller at the Midway tower telling people to speed up, slow down, exit the runway, that sort of a thing. So things just have to run slower and people have to be more vigilant about what's out there. So the way that the traffic was departing and arriving, at what point did they, because the, the departures are basically, when I was listening to, to some of the audio, they were basically, the Tracon was basically saying, go to the runway, take off, uh, we can't help you. And then once you're in the air, contact us. Is, is there a point at which they can say, okay, we're airborne, we need you now? Or is, that, is that a specified point or is that just kind of a once you're airborne thing? It's generally once you're airborne. So a lot of generally the way it's been working is that people are calling Chicago approach on the ground at Midway and getting their IFR, their instrument flight rules clearance to depart from the controller at the Chicago Tracon in Elgin, Illinois. And once they are ready, once they are getting, they are only getting what's called a release for departure once the airspace is clear, once there's no one else coming in or there's no one else departing that airspace that is usually owned by Midway Tower. So it's slowed everything down. And then once you're, once you have taken off, you're, yeah, you got to contact the departure controller. And because they've given you the release, they know to expect you. Um, usually all that's coordinated between the departure controller and the tower, but with no tower, it's all being run out of the Tracon. And so with the tower things, it's kind of easy to understand, you know, th there's no one in the tower, so it's very close in airspace and on the ground, things are operating a bit differently. But with the center, uh, what I found interesting, most interesting, I think, was the the issues at New York Center because of the way the boundaries that New York Center is responsible for, they're not actually responsible for that much domestic airspace or, or airspace over, over land, but they have a huge oceanic responsibility. H have you seen a big effect on that? Uh, I have seen a big effect on that. Uh, that has since been resolved uh, for the most part, but this is a big uh, stretch of the North Atlantic Ocean that New York Center owns. It includes Bermuda and it also, uh, it goes south of, I would say, Long Island area all the way down just north of Puerto Rico and then all the way east. It borders Santa Maria Flight Information Region. So it borders European airspace. It's that large. And if you were to look at uh, Flight Radar 24, compare it to in the past few days, you'd see very little traffic. There has been traffic going through that airspace, but not nearly as much as what has been the norm for that airspace. This is a big 
important chunk of airspace, especially for uh, aircraft that are going between Europe and Central and South America, in the Caribbean, and also to Africa. So not having that there has has had some pretty significant impacts. Now, has the we've seen elsewhere, and, and you talked about this with Indianapolis Center, where, where there's kind of a reduction in traffic, so it's been been able to be made up. Has the ATC issue in New York Center driven a a reduction in transatlantic traffic, or is it just kind of going hand in hand? There there are ways to get around it. There certainly have been reroutes and people certainly going through it still. And of course, this is all happening as a lot of uh, transatlantic traffic has been reduced anyway due to uh, COVID-19 and some government orders for borders to be closed. So that there's a lot going on there, but it certainly had an impact in terms of reroutes and and having having to detour. So, is there an issue with air traffic control in the U.S. that would really put a wrench in the works? I mean, you, you would think that New York Center would be a big one. Indian Indy Center is certainly with all of the cargo becoming even more important than it it already is. Is there a facility in the U.S. where if we saw it go to ACC zero, we would have a, a real problem? It's hard to say because of how interconnected the national airspace system is, but certainly you would not want to have more than one center fully down at any given time. That has happened in, it was disruptive enough in 2014 when the Chicago Center in Aurora, Illinois closed for over two weeks due to an arson. A technician there had set fire to the equipment room and um, there was a lot of stuff going on to route plans around and there were flight plans being sent by faxes. It was a mess. So to have a complete facility outage would be devastating. And if you had them in close proximity, that would be bad too. I could see some issues with certain facilities where uh, you don't have a lot of approach controls underneath the facility. Like in the Western United States, there's just less density of approach controls in many spots. And you just don't have that that tech option, that tower on route control option um, that they are using in Indianapolis Center to sort of circumvent this issue. There's also some large ones. I keep thinking about, I don't want to say this is a single point of failure, but I keep thinking about Salt Lake City Center, which is a very large center by area. And it's actually an area that has just had a couple of earthquakes in the past few days, but the center itself has not been affected. That's been more an issue with the tower. But Salt Lake City Center does not have tons and tons of underlying tracons. It has a a lot of traffic going through it between uh, the east and west coast transcontinental traffic. So losing that center would cause a lot of issues. And it's not possible, or correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not really possible for controllers at one center or, or another TRACON to really take over the airspace in it, kind of a wholesale takeover. It'd be very difficult for someone working in New York Center to say, uh, okay, I'm, I'm working Los Angeles Center today. That's correct. That's just not possible with the current technology. I want to say there has been some discussion about that that kind of started after the fire at Chicago Center in 2014. But currently that doesn't exist for technological reasons and also for training reasons. Each controller at an unroute facility is trained on a certain area. They can't even work every radar in the building. And it's highly specialized, many hours of training to do it correctly and safely. And you just really can't just put someone in from another facility and say, hey, you you work at LA Center, but now you're going to control New York Center. It's just too complex and just would not be a real possibility. Ethan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. 
I've learned a lot and, and I always love talking to people who, who I can learn from. So I, I hope our listeners got a lot out of it. Ethan Clapper, a, a journalist and a uh, aeronautics graduate student, looking forward to uh, speaking with you again soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ethan. Thanks for having me. One of the things that we're seeing a lot of this week that we've seen last week as well are, are repatriation flights where airlines are either being chartered or taking it uh, of their own of their own accord to to bring citizens of countries back to their home countries if they've been abroad. Some of them have been very interesting if only for the logistics involved or the routing of the particular aircraft. And one of the things that struck me was the the two WAMOS 747s that flew nonstop from Madrid to Honolulu to bring European citizens home from Hawaii before their ban went into effect. And that is a super, super long, long flight. What is that, 16 hours each way, maybe? It was, I think, 13 and a half going, and, and it'll be a little bit shorter, obviously, thanks to the jet stream on the way back. And, and those two flights are actually in the air from Honolulu on their way home. One is going to Gatwick, and one is going to Frankfurt. Those will have landed by the time that this podcast is released, but they're, they're currently in the air. Interesting. And there are a few others to call out, aren't there? I, I think there are. It would seem that... If you were a Canadian on vacation, you were in, in the Morocco. spring. You were in Morocco. Yeah, it's Air Canada is operating multiple flights from Morocco back to Canada. At least two, if not three, using what is it? The triple seven three hundred ER, which Would you like damn near six hundred seat version. Yeah, I think that it's like four hundred and fifty people they can fit in their their triple seven three hundred ERs. So that's a lot of Canadians in Morocco. I didn't know that Morocco was a prime destination for Canadian tourists, but see throughout all of this, you we're know. learning something new. And the other kind of pure logistical challenge I thought was was fascinating was a very large group of Mormon missionaries that were repatriated to Salt Lake City by Delta on, I think it was five flights from Asia and a few from Europe. And there's an Ethiopian flight coming from, I forget exactly where in Africa, but flying to, to Salt Lake City. So, I mean, that's you know thousands of people. Could not have been a, uh, a cheap mission to set up there, to have all these flights operating um, from the other side of the world back to the U.S. and Salt Lake City. I think the the Dublin flights oddly went back to Detroit. I'm not sure why, but if you have to come back from something like that in an emergency, a, a Delta A350 is quite a nice way to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just the logistics involved in getting you know because you go and and there's maybe you know a few dozen people at a time or something like that. Now we're talking about bringing you know hundreds and hundreds of people back. Uh -huh. At the same time, so I think that's a rather impressive effort to get all of those people home and quickly. And an interesting thing happened today with an American flight that was headed down to Lima. Uh, 
And, and you were a little bit more on top of this, so I'll let you kind of explain what was going on here. Sure. So, not a total huge amount to explain here, but it was a repatriation flight on behalf of the U.S. government from Miami down to Lima, Peru, on an American seven six seven. Not my aircraft of choice for an evacuation flight, but it is better than nothing. The aircraft got almost all of the way to Lima. They were probably less than a couple hundred miles outside. And Lima basically said, no, you're you're not landing, go away. And unfortunately, the flight had to go all the way back to Miami without accomplishing its mission of, of picking up American passengers to bring back to Miami. But that's, I think we talked about on the last episode, that's not the first time this has happened so far, is it? No, no. There have been a couple instances where landing permission has been refused and they've had to go back and either try it again or or just find a different way. Which is kind of crazy because in this case, American flying Miami to Lima, that should be easily within the capabilities of a, a flight crew to out and back uh, with the same crew or at least have a relief crew on board. So they would not even have to admit anyone into the country in Lima to um, – successfully accomplish this rescue flight. So that is extremely disappointing. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what happened and and if it was what was involved there. I, I haven't heard much more than than that it happened. Um, but uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if they try again or or if they find different accommodations or, or something to to get those folks home. So the last interesting flight that I, that I wanted to talk about was the Qantas QF1 and QF2, which are the Sydney, normally the Sydney, Singapore, London flights. And because of the restrictions that Singapore has put in place on transiting passengers, they have moved the refueling stop from Singapore to Darwin. And so that is the, we've now had the first ever London Darwin nonstop flight. On an A380 no less. Yeah. So, so interesting times that we live in. And so that was uh, an interesting thing that that Qantas is doing to kind of get around um, the the Singapore restrictions and still operate the flight, I guess, as, as long as possible. They had talked about moving the, the flight to a, a Perth flight out. So I don't know if that's still in the works or, or maybe later in the week or, or next week or something like that. But it'll be interesting to see how long the, the Sydney-Darwin-London route lasts. And I think Darwin, typically the largest aircraft you would ever see there is a 737-800 or an A320. So I don't believe they have any wide body service there at all. So to suddenly see uh, an A380 roll in must have been quite the hell of a sight. Surprise. But yeah, so so there's a lot of a lot of moving pieces still in the air. There's still a lot of traffic in the air, even though it's falling quickly. And we will keep at it as much as we can to to keep track of what's in the air, what's not in the air, and and how things are changing. Jason, is there anything we missed? Probably. No, no, I don't know. Probably, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> we'll find we'll out. Keep track at this point. Yeah. Well, somebody, somebody's got to do it. This has been episode eighty-one of Av Talk. I hope we learned something. I know I did. Talking with Ethan always. Fun to learn something new, even if the circumstances of our of our knowledge are not so great. But we'll hopefully have him on in the future to explain some 
some things less of a crisis mode and more of a more of an explanatory way but it, it was nice to hear from him if you find the podcast useful helpful entertaining informative if you just like hearing my and, and Jason's voice a rating or a review on iTunes would be most appreciated. It helps other people find the podcast. And I just like looking at gold stars if you've got them in, in your heart. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and hang in there. <laughs>